So we are continuing our series that Rob technically started last week, and I just want to encourage you again, hey, if you'll throw the QR code up on the screen real quick, this is going to be a really great sermon for anybody who's ever had doubts about the validity of the Bible, and if that's you, I really encourage you to scan that QR code, because I'm going to have all sorts of links and evidence on there and stuff that you can take and use later, because what's really cool about that app is you can actually send the notes to yourself you can email them to yourself so you can go back and refer to them later. And if you've ever been that person who isn't quite sure if the Bible is what everybody claims it to be, there's going to be a lot of great stuff for you on there. So I really, really encourage you scan that QR code and you will not be uh, disappointed based on what you find there. But what I want to start off with this morning, I want to know by show of hands, who are my UK football fans again? I know a lot of you. Who just doesn't care about sports in general? Cool. I'm sorry for this first story then. So in 2007, the University of Kentucky football team was having a fantastic year. We started off like 5-1, and 6-1, and one, and it was like the best thing that we had ever witnessed as UK football fans. For those of you who don't care about sports at all, UK has been historically terrible. Normally it's good if we get like to 500, if we win the same amount of games as we lose. That's a good season for most of UK's history until the recent history. But in 2007 was really when it started to turn around. We had this quarterback that was really, really good. He was up for a lot of postseason awards. And again, we started the season like 5-1, and 6-1. And, and at the time, my dad had season tickets, and he still has those. But at, at that point, all of us kids were like really into football. And so we all got to pick one game for the season that we really wanted to go to. And as I'm looking through the schedule, like I would every year, I count loss, 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 loss. Don't want to go to that one, loss. I think we could beat Louisville, so I want to go see the Louisville game this year. Louisville's pretty good, but I think we might be able to get them this year, and so I want to see the Louisville game. So that was the game that I put in with my dad, and I got to go see it. It was a great game. It was a lot of fun. UK ends up pulling out the victory in the end. Sorry, Jonathan, wherever you're at. It was really fun for me, probably really not good for him. But what I did not know was what would happen later on in the year. You see, in 2007, the number one LSU Tigers, who would later go on to win the championship, came in to Commonwealth Stadium, which, side note, that is what that stadium should still be called, came into Commonwealth Stadium and lost to the University of Kentucky Wildcats. And I was sitting on my couch watching the game, which isn't a bad thing. I love getting to sit down on the couch watching the game, because you get a little bit more analysis on the couch than you do in the game. The game is still fun, especially when you win a big game like that. However, I, I wasn't too disappointed because, if I'm being completely honest, I thought we would lose that game. I thought there was a good chance that we get blown out that game like we have a ton of times throughout UK's football history. However, we won. My sister got to storm the field. Everything was great. But what really stunk, and maybe some of you can identify that, with this because you were also on the couch watching this game, it went into four overtimes. So it was really exciting. It was going down to the last minute. And when you get into the fourth overtime, there's still this good chance that UK might pull this out. The problem was UK football lacked so many, like so much clout, so many credentials that they cut the coverage at the beginning of the fourth quarter or the fourth overtime because the nightly news needed to air. And no one cares about UK football, so we can just bring on the news and not show the end of the UK football game. It's gone on long enough. So for a good 15 to 20 minutes, I'm sitting on my couch, unsure of what happened. This was way before 
people would post everything all over social media. You couldn't just rewind it because the coverage stopped. It just moved on. So you couldn't go back and rewatch it. You couldn't find it on a different channel. It was on the local network, and there was nothing you could do to see the end of the game. And so I'm scrolling ESPN channels trying to find something that shows it or shows what happened in the game, and the only thing I get is the little ticker at the very bottom that shows that UK won, which was really exciting, except I didn't get to watch it. I didn't get to see it. I didn't get to see the victory. I didn't get to see what happened. And so later on, ESPN like shows their recap. My dad gave me an account of what happened. My sister gave an account. And uh, a couple other friends of mine also told me their view of what happened. But each of those was different. My dad, who has been around a little while, right? He's been around a little while. He's seen a lot of UK football. That's like the mountaintop experience for UK football. Nothing is better than when we beat number one LSU at home. That is like the best thing that could ever happen to a UK football fan. My sister, who's a little younger than me, she was maybe 14 at the time. All she'd ever known is that UK football is not half bad. This is just another really cool moment. Oh, I get to storm the field. Great. My friends in college were all like, man, those were, they were like picking apart the play and how it happened. So I got several different accounts of what actually happened in the game because I never got to see it. And the reason I tell you this story is because this is actually the reason we're in this series. Not because we like UK football, but because of all the different accounts that happen within the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, you will notice we are going quite out of order in the endings of all these books throughout this series. We're, we're trying to give all the different accounts of what each of those gospel writers wrote down and told to whoever was receiving their letters. And each of them tells the story a little bit differently. Because, as Rob said last week, all of these authors had a purpose for writing and an audience they were writing to. And so everything that they specifically wrote down went towards that purpose and to that audience. And last week, we covered the book of John and its ending. This week, we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark. If you study the Bible, if you've read the Bible, if you're familiar with Mark chapter 16, you know that leaves us in a very difficult spot. Because as we're going through the different accounts, most of them are very sure in what happened. John, like we learned last week, Last week paints this really beautiful story of what happens after Jesus comes back where he gets to, I guess, have eggs. He cooked eggs next to the sea. Is that that's what Rob did last week? He had a good meal with his disciples. In Matthew, we have one of the most powerful passages of Scripture at the very end where we're told to go and make disciples of all nations. Luke has a really great ending with a really great narrative to his story. But Mark is kind of the redheaded stepchild when it comes to the endings. His is very, very different. And here's why. There's a problem in Mark chapter 16. And if you haven't gone to the notes, again, I really encourage you to go to the notes because it will show you exactly what this problem is. If you open your Bible or if you're scrolling through Mark chapter 16 on your phone, look between verse 8 and verse 9. And you find the problem there. It is this phrase that's on the screen behind me. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. What do we do with that? How do we handle when the Bible actually tells us that we're not exactly 100% sure how to handle this ending? This is supposed to be the book that people like me stand up and tell you, this is your key to life. This is how you need to learn to live, how you need to learn to know God. This is like everything. And yet, at the end of one of the gospel accounts, after Jesus raises from the dead, which is the most important thing in all of Scripture, 
we're not even sure where this book actually ends. And I've had this conversation with lots of people over the course of time. I've had lots of people who have made statements over and over and over questioning the validity of the Bible, and part of it comes into play with this specific story. Because even the Bible seems to contradict itself here. And so here's some of the statements that I've heard, and maybe you have heard something similar. These are three of the major things that people like to ask me or question me or make statements about the Bible of. Number one is this, the Bible contradicts itself. You'll find without, in the gospel story, if you were to go through and you were to read every single one of the gospel accounts of what happens after the resurrection, they don't quite seem to line up. One of the gospel writers says three people came to the tomb, one says four, one says Peter was there with the women, the others don't. How do we handle that? Number two thing that I hear in statements often made about the Bible is what we read today isn't actually what the original text said. You see, when we were translating the Bible, especially like when King James overtook the process, right? He had the translator seated in front of him and he was looking over their shoulder. And a lot of people will say that King James changed the words in English as they were translating to, to fit exactly what he wanted. Or there's other people throughout history who, when they translate the passages of Scripture, actually take their own way of doing it. They change the words. They fit it to what they want it to say. Something I hear all the time. Number three is that people have added stuff to it. Again, like we're reading in Mark chapter 16, people have just put their own spin on what happens at the end, or they've added sections of Scripture like this. Maybe you've heard some of these questions before in your own life. Maybe you've had some of these questions before. I know I have. I've wondered, how can we trust that the Bible we have today is accurate to what the original authors wrote way back when? We're going to get to it. We're going to cover that today. But first, we've got to lay some groundwork. Before we can handle the ending of Mark, we've got to kind of figure out who Mark is, why he wrote this book, and then we also need to talk about how the Bible was put together. So we're going we're gonna to put those foundational building blocks together before we get there. Some of you guys have done this before. Like when you were kids, you wanted to convince your parents to do something, this, this amazing jump leap task you wanted them to accomplish for you. Maybe you wanted to go on a trip for your first time without your parents, and you needed to convince them to do something. And before you could convince them that this was going to be okay, you had to lay a lot of foundational work. I remember I used to do this with my mom all the time. When I needed to ask her to go over to a friend's house that I knew it was going to be a little bit of a stretch, I tried to lay all the groundwork and the foundational work to make it seem like it was all going to be okay. This is actually a good thing for you to let me go do this. Having all the time, maybe you guys can identify with me on this. But this is what we have to do for the book of Mark, too. If we're going to understand how we're supposed to interpret chapter 16, we got to lay the foundation. And so we're going to start in the very beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you are to read Mark chapter 1, verse 1, you will see everything that Mark is trying to accomplish all in one verse. And here is what verse 1 says. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Or if you read the one that I have on the screen behind you, it says, I'm uh, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So right there, we see in two, two little phrases, Mark has summed up what he's trying to accomplish. He wants to tell us about what Jesus did, the good news about Jesus, and he wants to tell us who Jesus is, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Now, Mark is really, really important in what he is saying here because John Mark wasn't a firsthand witness of what Jesus did. He didn't get to see it for himself. 
John Mark is actually a disciple of two major people we find in the Bible. Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, and Paul, one of the main writers that wrote most of the rest of our New Testament. He collected all these stories about Jesus from what Paul had collected, but more importantly, from Peter. Peter told him and instructed him and taught him all of the things that Jesus did. And so not only do we have Mark's account here, but Mark's account likely follows right along the line with one of the disciples who was at Jesus' side for everything. So in a lot of ways, Mark's account on what Jesus did and who Jesus is is accurate to what Peter saw on a regular basis. And so when we're trying to figure out what Jesus did, we'll notice that if we were to read through the entire book of Mark, if I just kept going from verse 1 all the way to the end, you'll notice that it's different from the others. It doesn't include a lot of what Jesus taught to the people around him. It focuses on his actions, his healings, when he casts out demons. All of those things are emphasized. There are some teaching, but it's mostly based on what Jesus did. The second thing is really strange, and I think the second thing is the key to understanding chapter 16. Because here, in verse 1 that we just read, it calls Jesus the Son of God. And what's weird is that when you read that phrase, that is the last time in the book of Mark that it mentions Jesus as the Son of God all the way up until he is crucified and one of the soldiers says, surely this man was the Son of God. Through all of those chapters, through all of those stories, through everything that Jesus did, nobody else in Mark's gospel calls Jesus the Son of God. In fact, what we see over and over and over again is that when Jesus has an interaction where he heals somebody, where he casts out a demon, any of those situations, we actually see Jesus trying to keep a secret about who he is. If you're scrolling with me through the notes, you'll see that there's a few passages of Scripture. Like in Mark chapter 1, verse 34, he says he also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. In Mark chapter 1, verse 43, it says, Jesus sent the former leper away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Mark chapter 7, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. Mark chapter 8, who do you say I am? And Peter answered also, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Notice he calls him the Messiah, though, and not the Son of God. Over and over and over again, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus seems like he's trying to keep a secret. That's the account that Mark tries to give. Over and over and over again, there is this messianic secret about who Jesus truly is. And the whole reason that Mark does that culminates in chapter 16. We'll get to that in just a moment, but before we do that, there's the foundational piece number one. The foundational piece number two is how in the world we get this. Now, When you came in this morning, there was likely a piece of paper uh, on your seat or a seat next to you. If you do not have a piece of paper, please try to find one real quick. Ask the people in front of you. And while you all are doing that, Ian, if you would come up here real quick. You'll notice that in that letter is a very specific thing that I wrote earlier this weekend. Show off. No, 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 no. You got to stand up here. This letter was to you. All right, so I wrote this letter earlier to end this week. I mailed it to him. You can see the stamp and the coverage by the post office and everything. That went so far. And in that letter, you can read in front of you, or if you want to throw up on the screen behind me, take the original letter, the photocopy of what this looks like. 
It says, Ian, you are an amazing man of God, father and hard worker. I believe God will do amazing things in your life if you continue to abide in him, in Christ, Andrew Dawson. It was a really nice letter, wasn't it? Now you can have a seat. Okay. You got the letter, right? You understood everything in the letter? Like, it's stored in your heart. Got it. Perfect. So some of you have a copy of this letter that looks exactly like this. This is what the letter I just wrote and tore up looks like. Some of you have a copy that looks a lot more fancy. This is Kayla's version of the letter. This is the KIV, Kayla's International Version. It says the exact same thing. If you were reading along with what I just said, this version says the exact same thing as what I wrote. Then there are some of you who have a slightly different version. It has a little extra ending on it, and it says, also, your wife is a great worship leader. I'm being too nice. I need to backtrack some as we're going through this. The reason I did this, the reason I presented this illustration to you guys is because this is actually very similar to how the Bible is formed. Okay, The original is destroyed. It is very true. We do not have the original letter that Mark wrote. We do not have the original letters that Paul wrote. We do not have a lot of those original texts lying around and waiting for us to find, at least to our knowledge. However, it is easy to figure out exactly what the original letter said because there are so many copies that are generated around. You could take this letter home, and you will always know the letter that I wrote to Ian. I really wanted to set it on fire to really bring this illustration home, but I didn't want Rob to get mad at me at the beach, so I didn't burn the letter. However, it is destroyed, and yet you can still figure out exactly what that letter said. Even though it looks different, even though there are different versions, it is true you know what the original said. Even in the one that I pinned there at the end that has the separate ending, you know the beginning because it was exactly word for word the same. The same is true for our Bible. No, the originals do not exist. However, we have thousands of copies, thousands upon thousands of copies that all look the same. You can look at the original Greek text. You can translate the Greek text if you know Greek. We have, let me just throw the numbers out here for you. In Greek manuscripts, the Bible was originally written in Greek, by the way. If you didn't know that already, the New Testament, all Greek, Old Testament, all Hebrew. So in Greek text that we have, 5,856, including some that date as early as 130 A.D., Non-Greek manuscripts, including stuff that's written in Armenian, Latin, all sorts of stuff, we have 18,130. That brings the grand total in copies of Scripture to 23,986. Meaning, if you were to look at other people in history, like George Washington, there is more evidence that exists about Jesus than George Washington, who existed only a few hundred years ago. So even though we do not have the original manuscripts, the original letters that were penned, we have so many copies that if you are able to translate Greek and look at the the letters, you can see that they say the 99% the exact same thing. The only variations we have are stuff like in the endings. 
where it seems like there's a slight word variation here or there. So close to 99% of what we have matches. If you don't believe me, if you want to do your own research, in the, in the Bible app, I have given you links. I even have a picture, if you want to throw the picture up on the screen. This is an original manuscript that we have that dates in the first couple hundred years. And about 10 years ago, I could have looked through this and I could have translated individual words for you. Now I have a computer that does a lot of it for me, and I have some dictionaries I would have to refer to because I don't remember a lot of the Greek words off the top of my head. But even myself, without a ton of education, can look at documents like this and translate it. My final, my second year of Greek, was to take something like this and try to translate it word for word. So there are people today a lot smarter than me whose entire jobs hinge on reading manuscripts like this one to translate the Bible word for word into English or into other languages. Also, within what I've given you, there is even a place where you can go and look at the first, I guess the oldest version of the New Testament. We have an entire version that includes all the way from Matthew to Revelation, written in Greek that dates to 350 A.D. that is still around today. And you'll notice it Codex, um, I forgot the name off the top of my head, I don't remember it, but you can look it up right there called the Codex, and you can see page for page, each individual book and chapter, what the Bible says. And again, if you were to study Greek, you could go through and translate it. So those statements I made a few minutes ago, all of them are false. Because there are scholars today, I myself could, if you really wanted me to, I could go look at some of these pictures and I could translate for you what the Bible actually says. So those people who question whether the English words we have are the true words that match words like this, people could tell you that it is exactly the same. If there was something wrong with the King James Version, the NIV Version, there are tons of smart and intelligent people who can translate those texts and tell you it matches 99% of the way. There are some times when you translate the Bible, you've got to change things around just a hair. For example, if you were to look at a passage where Jesus says he will paint your sins as white as snow, what do you do around the equator where people have never seen snow? It's hard to translate that into a word snow because they don't know what it means. So you have to change translations in that way. But we have very few things like that in our English translation. So it is accurate. It says what it meant a long time ago. The words that Mark wrote throughout his passage, throughout his, throughout his book, throughout his letter, they're accurate. We can find them. We can translate them. But what do we do when there's phrases like the one I said before you? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read both endings to Mark chapter 16, and then we're going to talk about it. Here is what the beginning says, the first eight verses. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salem bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead 
of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as I told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So, depending on how we end up dealing with this entire situation, if you believe this was supposed to be the final words of Mark to the audience that he was writing to, the words of Jesus, the words about his resurrection, do not carry on because the women went and told no one. Here's the second ending, the potential added ending. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive, that she had seen them, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. They returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven. As they were eating, he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And so he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. And in my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues and they will pick up, they will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he, had, he was taken up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by signs that accompanied it. So we have two, two ways we can handle this. Either we can look at the first eight verses of Mark and we can say, you know, I think this is where this book was supposed to end. Or we can take that additional ending and believe that it was actually where the Mark's account was supposed to end. And let me give you some reasons why you might pick or choose one or the other. You might choose the verse 8 ending because you think, well, that's since our earliest manuscripts, like the ones I showed you on the screen, don't have this ending, Mark probably stopped writing there and somebody else came along after him and wrote in what they thought the ending should be. Because it seems very abrupt. Just two women running away, not telling anyone. That seems like a strange ending. Or you might say that when Mark wrote his letter, if you wanted to believe that there was an additional ending, you might think that the original got damaged. Maybe his, the rest of his ending was ripped off in transit, because it's not like our mail system today. There was a person who literally had to transport this letter by themselves to wherever its destination was supposed to be. So maybe along the way the letter gets damaged or maybe it just gets lost and the people who try to copy it only copy the first part of the ending. They don't include the last several verses. I'll give you my opinion. Again, my opinion, Lisa, before you turn this into a reel and I get destroyed online, this is an opinion and there is no way we can actually know fact of which one is true. My opinion is that Mark probably stopped at verse 8. I don't think that the ending that we have is supposed to be there. That's not heretical. Don't, don't get mad at me. We can have a conversation about this later if you want. I don't think that ending is supposed to be there. I think that Mark probably ended in verse 8 because of everything we've talked about up to this point. Notice I talked about the messianic secret where 
when Mark opens his gospel, he calls Jesus the Son of God, and he's not called that again until he's crucified. So there was this concept throughout the entire book of Mark that the whole world around them does not know that Jesus is the Messiah. And when you were given this letter that Mark wrote, and you read that ending where it says, throw the two endings on the screen if you haven't already, it says that trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Your response to that should then be, after reading the entire book, is they would have sat and listened to all 16 chapters of what Mark wrote. And they would have thought, if the world doesn't know, we need to go tell them. So the response should be, when you read Mark 16, 1 through 8, is that you need to be the one that goes and tells people. However, if you do not agree with me, it's okay. Because everything that's written after that is still true. You can take the accounts that, were, that are still added to the end of this. Even if you believe they're true, they are also mentioned elsewhere. A lot of people think that because this ending may not need to be there, it shouldn't have any kind of authority, but it's not true. In everything that I read you, it is echoed somewhere else in one of the four Gospels. Every single story that is within those verses, 9 through 20, is also echoed in either Matthew, Luke, or John. And so even if this ending isn't supposed to be there, the words within it are still true. Everything is still accurate and everything is still powerful because it is elsewhere in Scripture. So this entire account is still accurate even if the ending isn't supposed to be there or it is. Because look at the, actual, look at the ending that's actually written in verse 20. It says, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. Which, what did I just say the whole purpose would have been? And your reaction would have been if you stopped in verse 8. You would have gone out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed His word by the signs that accompanied it. So, as we wrap up this message today, I don't have a lot of application for you. I'm not going to tell you how to do this. Because the truth is, the Holy Spirit should be working within you to follow this key point. The world does not know about Jesus. Go and tell them. That's the whole point of Mark chapter 16. Whether you believe in the first ending of verses 1 through 8 or the last ending that ends in verse 20, both carry the exact same thing. And I know you might be thinking to yourself, Drew, you could have just said that from the beginning and we wouldn't have to go through all that. It was still important, I promise. But the ending is true either way. That your job from here on out, once you read the end of the resurrection story, is to go and tell the world about Jesus. And it looks like a lot of different, a lot of different ways. It looks different for each and every individual here. I'm not going to tell you exactly what that is. I'm going to leave that up to the Holy Spirit in your life. Because when the Holy Spirit moves, as I have said over and over and over again, we should move too. When you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you to tell somebody about Jesus, do it. Even if it doesn't work the first time, even if they don't listen to you the first time, you might just be planting the seed that ultimately gets watered elsewhere that sprouts and grows. I'll leave you with this. I've painted you plenty of evidence. And there's more. I've, that's all I could fit within about 30 minutes. So if you want to have a, more of a discussion, I, I would love that. And we could have it for hours on end, as Benson learned earlier this week. I could talk about this stuff all day. But if Jesus was real, if the accounts we have of him are in fact true, if Jesus is the Son of God, if he did in fact rise from the dead, then every single thing written in this is true. 
then we have to be obedient to it and do what it tells us to do. So go and preach the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, again, I'm just so gracious to be here gathered with uh, this church family. Lord, I know there are, are people within our church, uh, there's people that we have come in contact with on a daily basis that struggle with doubt and struggle with how to handle your scripture and your words. And so, Lord, today, uh, as we wrestle with what happens in Mark chapter 16, no matter where we fall on, on its place, no matter where we fall on its authority, we know that the words are true. and We know what our job is. We know what our duty is, God, and we're so thankful for that. Lord, I ask as we leave this place this morning, as we continue to sing a, a song of worship, I pray that you would give us a spirit of boldness. That wherever we are, whatever it is we're doing, whoever it is we come in contact with, when your spirit commands us to preach and teach and share the good news, Lord, give us the boldness to do it this morning. Give us the boldness to do it throughout this week. Lord, we thank you. We love you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.